Thank you so much, Kathy, and thank you, praise team. That was just a wonderful time. I really could spend some more time singing those songs again with you, and I'm so <clears throat> grateful for your ministry to us today. The most famous sermon that has ever been preached in American history was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was preached by America's greatest pastor theologian, Jonathan Edwards. He lived in the early 1700s and he pastored a church in Massachusetts for 23 years. The sermon was delivered in what came to be known as the Great Awakening. Much later, Jonathan Edwards was elected the president of Princeton College but he died after three months in office of smallpox in 1758. I first heard about this sermon in the public schools. Can you believe that? I was a junior in high school in 1974, and in our history book were excerpts of this sermon. That's how famous it was. What Edwards did in the sermon was he painted a fierce picture of the wrath and judgment of God that actually unnerved people. One man sprang up and ran down the aisle and he said out, Mr. Edwards, have mercy. Others caught hold of the back of their pews lest they should slip into the pit. Most thought that the day of judgment had actually dawned upon them. So striking was this sermon, as I said, that over 200 years later, I read portions of it in the public school history book in my junior year. Now I want to ask a simple question this morning. Is God angry with sinners? As Pastor Edwards preached... Well, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and I want you to look with me at verse 18. It's page 1116 in the chair Bible in front of you, and I would really encourage you to turn there and notice what God's Word has to say. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now what does the Bible mean when it talks about the wrath of God? Well, we must never think of the wrath of God as an emotion. Hear me very carefully this morning. God never explodes. He never loses His temper. God's wrath is not a vindictive passion in which God, in revenge, takes revenge with delight on His enemies. Pastor John Stott has written this, Human anger is mostly very unrighteous. It is an irrational and uncontrollable emotion containing much vanity, animosity, malice, and the desire for revenge. It should go without saying that God's anger is absolutely free of all such poisonous ingredients. So what is God's wrath? 
God's wrath is His righteous reaction toward evil. We could describe it as His holy hatred of all sin. It is called wrath and anger in the Bible so that everyone will take it seriously because it has such awful consequences. It's God's certain judgment on everything that is opposed to His holy will. Now as we come to this passage in our study in the book of Romans, we really have one question at this point, and that question is, what are the reasons for God's wrath? That's what we want to see this morning. And just as we begin to look at them, I want to take a moment and ask you to pray with me that God might teach us this morning. Father, today is a time for sober reflection. It's an opportunity to understand a side of your nature that we would rather not see. It's an opportunity for us to deal with things in our hearts and in our lives that we often are very comfortable with. And Today we pray that you will give us a crystal clear understanding of who you are, why you have revealed this, and how even in your wrath you are desiring to draw us to your love, that we might know you in a personal way and be saved for all eternity. So guide us now into your truth. Give us ears to hear. May we have eyes to see. And then may we have wills to respond. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I want you to notice as we look at this that number one, God tells us that the reason for his wrath is because all people suppress God's truth. Verse 18 ends by speaking of all people who by their unrighteousness suppress God's truth. Now that is a very interesting word. The word suppress has the idea of prevent. It means to hold back, to hold down. It is the idea of trying to make something ineffective. When I was in junior high school, I was on the wrestling team. And I saw many, many wrestlers pinned to the mat by their opponent. And as they were pinned to the mat, try as they might, with all their might, they could not rise up off the mat. They were in the grip of somebody else's power. They were held down, made ineffective, prevented from rising up and exerting themselves. And that's what the Word of God here means when it describes suppressing the truth of God trying to hold His truth down so that it cannot rise up and be effective. Now, let's explore for just a little bit here in verse 18 a number of things about this. I want you to notice it starts with a rejection of God and then leads to sinning against people. When the Apostle Paul talks here about ungodliness and unrighteousness, The first term is vertical. 
Ungodliness is against God. The second term is horizontal. Unrighteousness is against people. And the first always precedes and entails the second. I want you to think about this for a moment. The essence of sin always begins with a rejection of God. It is the attempt to get rid of God. And since we cannot be successful in getting rid of God, it is the determination to live as though God does not exist. It is saying to God, I want to do things my way, not your way. I want to prevent you, God, from controlling me, so I will resist. And inevitably, people are hurt by our unrighteous behavior. And so it always works this way. Reject God and hurt people. I want you to notice the second thing I think that we see in verse 18 about this suppression of truth. It is very clear it brings the righteous reaction, wrath, and judgment of God upon us. As many of you know, last week I was at the Moody Bible Institute for my 40th class reunion. The second president of that wonderful school was R.A. Torrey. Many, many times I sat in the auditorium named after him and James M. Gray, the Torrey Gray Auditorium. And I want you to listen to what R.A. Torrey said in a sermon that he preached. Listen to these words. O wicked man, do not fancy because God loves you, He will wink at your sin. Not for one moment. He hates your sin. He hates your greed. He hates your selfishness. He hates your cruelty. He hates your dishonesty. He hates your lying. He hates your drunkenness. He hates your impure imagination. He hates your moral uncleanness. He hates your beastliness. He hates every sin, great and small, of which you are guilty. And we could add this. He would not be God if He did not do so. And then I want you to notice that all are included. The little word all there is very important. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women. All are included. Every one of us in our natural sinful condition from the day that we were born. I remember when I was a teenager and I read this passage, a question came to my mind. Who is this referring to? And I wasn't sure. And so I called in to a radio talk show. It was the first and only time in my life that I've ever called into a radio talk show and asked the question, who is this referring to? The pastor gave me the answer. I was probably 17 years of age. This is what he said. Every non-Christian, in every generation, including today, That's who this is referring to. 
If you are a Christian, this is what you were previously. If you are not a Christian, this is what you are right now. And outside of trusting in Jesus Christ, everyone rejects God, everyone sins against people, everyone suppresses the truth. Do you think that's worthy of the judgment of God? I think we would say yes. Now notice how the Apostle Paul continues. Number two. He says all people ignore God's revelation. Look with me at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Now there may become a natural question that would arise at this very point. And we might say this morning, well, just wait a minute. Aren't there some people who do not know? I mean, after all, some people weren't raised right. Some are not educated. They have not been taught. Surely we would respond, you cannot blame people like that. There are some people who do not know any better. And I want you to notice what verse 19 very clearly says. There is truth about God He has made known to everyone. Verse 19 says, God has made it plain. That is a very interesting word. It means to set in a clear light. When it says it's plain, it means it's well known. It means it's obvious. And when it says that God has made it plain to them, the little preposition to can read among so that it could have the idea of God has made it plain among them. It's all around people. All about us is God's revelation making every single man, woman, boy, and girl, teenager responsible. Let me just pause here for a moment and say the Bible teaches us that there are two types of revelation. There is special revelation... And there is general revelation. Special revelation is what is found in the Bible and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need special revelation in order to be saved. That's why we send missionaries out to the far ends of the earth. Because no one can be saved apart from special revelation and understanding about the Lord Jesus Christ. But general revelation is found in nature. It cannot save us. But Paul is very clear here. General revelation is enough to condemn us. 
Now, if we were to ask this question, what is general revelation, do you know we could not find a better answer than is found right here? This is the textbook passage on general revelation. And let's notice what God's Word is teaching us about it, all right? Number one, it is in creation. It is in creation. God has made His truth plain, according to verse 20, ever since creation in the things that have been made. Now, the Bible talks about this in many, many passages. Here is one that is well known to us. Would you read with me Psalm 19, 1 and 2? Let's read it together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Look at those last two words. They reveal knowledge. Every day, every night, God reveals Himself to how much of the world? All of the world. It is in creation. Notice the second thing about it. Secondly, it shows God's nature. It shows God's nature. Verse 20 says, in creation, we can know God's invisible attributes. Those are His qualities, what He is like. And I want you to notice that he puts his finger on two of God's qualities. Number one, verse 20, he is an eternal being that has all power. What the Apostle Paul is talking about here has come to be known as the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Cosmos means world. Cosmology means the study of the universe. And so the cosmological argument is by studying the universe and nature, you can understand that there is a God. And here's how the argument goes. Everything that exists has a cause, right? Everything that exists has a cause. Clearly, the universe, the Milky Way that we are part of, exists, so it has a cause. The first cause must be eternal in order to cause everything else. At some point, as you move back from cause to cause to cause to cause to cause, you have to get to the first cause. And the first cause, then, must be eternal to be the cause of everything else, And that cause also must be powerful to cause everything else. That eternal, powerful cause is who? Is God. That's the cosmological argument being taught right here. Notice the second quality of God that we see in creation. He has, according to verse 20... A divine nature. A divine nature. 
What that means is he possesses all the qualities that we normally associate with deity. And so as we go to the store and we buy our favorite food, and maybe we sit down to eat our favorite fruit or our favorite vegetable, that shows us that God is good in giving us that food. As we examine the intricacies of the universe, the intricacies of the human body, we know God is intelligent. As we relate to one another as friends, we understand a God who made us capable of doing that is a personal God. And then because we are alive and we see life in our world, then we know God is living. And because we operate on the basis of wisdom, God must be all-wise. And as we have skill in the things we do, God must be skillful. And as we do things with a purpose, God clearly has a purpose in why He created. And so we see His divine nature. Notice a third thing about God's creation. It is undeniable. It is undeniable. Look at verse 20. The Bible says about this, it all has been clearly perceived, so in verse 21, we all know God. Those two words, clearly perceived, are a play on words in Greek. If you could look at the original language, you would discover that they are rhyming words, and so it is a play on words. We can't bring it across exactly in English, but here is what it would be similar to. His unseeable are clearly seen. His unseeable things are clearly seen. And it's interesting, the word clearly is a reference to vision with the physical eye. Perceived is a reference to inner perception with the mind. So that this expression, clearly perceived, means this. Outward observation becomes inner perception. And this is true of all people in every place throughout the world. As we observe with our eyes and perceive the external world, it leads to an inner perception in our mind. There is a God. And we are accountable to Him. When I put this image up on the screen, we all know these two people, do we not? The girl was Helen Keller, and the woman was her teacher, Ann Sullivan. Helen Keller was born blind and deaf. And as a result, she was unable to speak. She was a wild child, as you can imagine. And Anne Sullivan learned how to communicate with her. She taught her how to learn and how to read Braille. 
When it came time to teach, Helen Keller about God, Ann Sullivan, did not feel adequate. So she took this girl to a very famous pastor by the name of Phillips Brooks. He wrote the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And when Phillips Brooks taught Helen Keller about God, She later, in a letter, wrote this. I knew him. I just did not know his name. I want you to think about that. In a world of darkness, silence, and aloneness, from all that she knew around her, before anyone had ever told her, she perceived there is a God. And in every human heart, God gives the same perception. As we look at our world around us, it is undeniable. He is real, He is alive, and we are accountable. And so, the final thing that we learn from creation is it gives people no excuse. Look at the last phrase in verse 20. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. People are responsible for suppressing God's truth by sin and disobedience. This is what we mean, by the way, by the doctrine of human responsibility. You will often hear in church and in Bible studies two twin truths. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And when we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean that God is sovereign over all things, including our very salvation. But when we talk about human responsibility, what we, what we mean by that is this. People know what they are doing, and therefore they are responsible and accountable to God. If you are just a little bit older than I am, you know this very famous man. His name was Erman Titov, and he was a Russian cosmonaut. He was the very second man to circle the earth in a spaceship. In fact, it was because he circled the earth as we were in rivalry with the Soviet Union that led eventually to the uh, space wars and the landing of the first person on the moon in 1969. How many of you remember Neil Armstrong, one small step for man, one giant step for mankind? We were all listening to the radio, by the way. When this Russian cosmonaut came back and landed safely on the earth, I want you to listen to what he said. 
Some people say there's a God out there. But in my travels around the earth all day long, I looked around and didn't see Him. I saw no God nor angels. The rocket was made by our own people. I don't believe in God. I believe in man, his strength, his possibilities, his reason. How many think that Titov was just a slow learner? How many think he just didn't know any better? How many think that he was ignorant of these truths? What does the Bible say? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know what someone said, by the way, about this? They said that he stepped outside of his spaceship without his spacesuit, he would have met God real fast. What a tragedy this is. But he is representative of you and me in our unsaved state. We all ignore God's revelation. It is why we are deserving of His wrath. Look how the Apostle Paul concludes. All people refuse to live for God's glory. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. You know what this tells us by telling us what people do not do? They do not live for God's glory. It tells us what the purpose of our lives is. God created us that we would live for His glory. If you have never read the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Confession, you know this very, very famous statement as to why God created us. Let's read it together. Would you join me? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God created us to enjoy Him And in so enjoying Him, we live for His glory. 
But I want you to notice what happens when we refuse to live for the glory of God. Three things happen. Number one, we do not worship Him. Paul says we don't give Him thanks. We don't honor Him. Secondly, we think worthless thoughts about Him. We become futile in our imaginations. And then finally, we substitute wrong gods for Him. Verse 23 talks about all the idols that we can worship and live for. You know, when I was in seminary, my professor Norman Geisler said, we need to always remember that idols can be mental as well as metal. And we think of the pagan world bowing down to idols representing animals and insects and and creatures, but in our modern world, are not idols often mental? Are they not? What are the gods of our day? Aren't they pleasure? Aren't they things? Aren't they materialism? Hasn't sports become a god for many people? Isn't money? We know all these things characterize our world. And I want you to notice something very interesting here about this. Notice that it is sequential. Did you notice that? In our rejection of God, we first do not worship Him by thanking Him or praising Him. That then leads to worthless thoughts about Him. And then eventually it leads to substituting wrong gods for Him. Uh, We are taught in our schools that we are evolving. How many think this is evolving? You know what the Bible teaches? We are devolving. This is not evolution as the British uh, term it. This is devolution. And it is the result of not living for the glory of God. How many think this describes our world today? How many did this describe you before you came to know Jesus? Of course, it does. This morning, as I bring us to a conclusion, we all know this man on the screen, don't we? This was Stephen Hawking. He passed away last year. He was in his early 70s. And by the world's estimation, he was a very great man. He was a brilliant physicist. He fought Lou Gehrig's disease valiantly for decades, never becoming bitter, resentful. If you read what he said, he felt like he had an impact on encouraging the education of women in the university that he taught in. By the world's standards, he was a great 
an admirable man. But I want you to notice what he said about God. Look at this. God is the name people give to the reason we are here. But I think that reason is the laws of physics rather than someone with whom we can have a personal relationship. It's an impersonal God. Aren't all three of those things there? Refusing to worship the true God? Thinking worthless thoughts about that God? And then ultimately, substituting another God for Him, the God of physics, the God of science, the God we cannot know. As you look at this, there are two reactions. Number one, Weep for a man like that, right? Weep for a man like that. And then realize in his brilliance, in his greatness, in his courage, it's the ultimate end of rejecting God. It's the ultimate end of rejecting God. This morning, apart from the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation, so wonderfully revealed in His Word, we will all end up like that. Two Sundays ago, a father in our church came to me. And he said, Pastor, I want you to know my daughter has read through the book of Romans twice. And he said she has started memorizing the first chapter. And something is happening there. She could very well be on her way back to God. Are you on your way back to God? Are you on your way back? Let's pray together. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed,
God is speaking to you. He is speaking to you every day in all that is around you. And you know that He exists. You know He is living, personal, good, wise, intelligent, skillful, and has a purpose for why He created you. And He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to do for you what you could not do for yourself. You and your sin and disobedience could never earn the favor of God. But Jesus Christ and the perfection of His sinlessness could. And He went to the cross and died for your sins. And just before He offered up His Spirit, He cried, It is finished. Paid in full. The Bible says that all the ordinances and all the commandments that were against us and judged us rightly were nailed with Jesus to the cross. They were taken out of the way. And now God, because of Christ, can forgive you, receive you, and welcome you. Because His wrath fell on His Son 2,000 years ago, there is no need for His wrath to fall on you. If you will come to Him, repent, and trust Him as Lord and Savior. I would like to give you that opportunity right now. You can say something like this, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have lived my life on my terms, my way. I know that I have often suppressed your will, your truth. But I believe that you still love me, and I believe that you sent your Son from heaven to this earth, and he became the God-man. He went to the cross and died for me. He rose again that I might have eternal life. And you from your heart can say to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own way. I'm turning to you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life. Make me a child of God. You may say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. And now, because I belong to you, and you are my Lord and Savior, with all my heart, I long to follow you. I know I will not do it perfectly, but I desire to live for you. Thank you. Blessed Lord.
Father, thank you today that the Spirit of God can do what I cannot do. He can take the things of Christ and and make them plain to us. He can open blind eyes. He can soften hardened hearts. And He can draw men and women, boys and girls, young people to the Savior. I pray, O God, today that You would do that very thing. Now we love You. Now we thank You. In Jesus' name. Amen.